the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. All right. <clears throat> the Gospel of Matityahu. Or Matai, if you wanted to use his short Hebrew name. Um, I have to tell you that these these 12 pages may appear daunting to you at first. Um, Some of this material we won't go into at any depth. But I always try in the the notes to put some things in for those who want to maybe dig a little deeper and to even give you some references. The first thing I want to say is that the commentaries that that, that I am using primarily as my sources for study are the commentary on Matthew in the International Critical Commentary, published by uh, T.N.T. Clark. The authors are Davies and Allison. So when you see references to Davies and Allison throughout this work, that's, that's the work I'm referring to. It is a three-volume work on Matthew. In the first volume, over 200 pages are allotted to the introduction. So my 12 pages are nothing. Okay, so... Um, I'm also using um, Hagner's, H-A-G-N-E-R, two-volume work out of the Word Bible Commentary. And, of course, then the other standard commentaries, Brodus and uh, uh, several others that uh, have been around for years and years and years and years. I always check Calvin because even though uh, not everybody agrees with his theology, myself included, in its entirety, uh, he was, a, he was a, an unbelievably brilliant exegete, and he sees things in the text which sometimes others miss. Um, I also am doing my best to look into the Church Fathers and their commentaries or statements on this text. Um, sometimes as Messianics we have a tendency to disregard the Church Fathers. That's unfortunate. The Church Fathers in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries were that much closer to the Apostles than we are. They, they had a working understanding and knowledge of the, the, the tensions that had gone on at the end of the 1st century and how that changed Judaisms and how it changed uh, the emerging Christian Church. And so they, they have insights that are worthy for us to consider. And so I want to try to include them. I also am interested in a commentary which is very difficult to get a hold of, and I finally did get a copy. It's by uh, Samuel Tobias Locks, L-A-C-H-S. It's no longer in print. It's called a a rabbinical or rabbinic commentary on the New Testament. But he only finished the synopsis. Actually, he only finished Matthew. Um, So I will be incorporating some of that. Ultimately, we want to study the book of Matthew in its historical context, which, as we will see, is the late first century. And within its social context means within its Jewish context. Um, I start out by saying the study of the Gospels has undergone radical changes in modern times. The history of religions following the Darwinian concept of natural evolution, gave rise to new ways of viewing the gospel records. Let me explain what I mean by that in very brief order. In the 1800s, the impact of Darwin was on far more than the discipline of science. It was on the discipline of anthropology in general, and that included sociology. And when the departments of religion, particularly in Germany, began to incorporate the idea of evolution, they brought that into the concept of religion. Meaning what? Meaning that religion begins from and evolves. 
Okay, now for the, for the history of religions people, which is the discipline that uh, this is usually titled, it was opposite of Darwin's theory. It went from multiplicity to singularity, meaning what? That the, the history of religions people taught at the turn of the, from the 1800s to the 1900s, that religion usually starts out as polytheistic and migrates or evolves to a monotheism. Because what happens is that a polytheism, eventually one god or goddess wins out, and that one becomes predominant even if there is still a, a polytheism, there isn't a dominant god. And, they, and so, so they said, let's apply this to the Old Testament. Let's read the Old Testament and see if that's what we find. And sure enough, looking for it, they found it. They found all these different names of God, right? They found yod vav they found Elohim, they found El Shaddai, they found El Elyon, they found El, right? They said, oh, look, look all these gods that Israel had. And which one finally won out? yod vav So then why... Didn't, if if yod heh finally won out, why do we keep having all these names in our Bible? And the answer was, well, the Bible is a mishmash compilation of various documents that were put together in the time of Josiah. And they just didn't go through and edit everything the way they should have. And so they began to pull out the various strains, you know, the, the, um, the so-called... E or J document was the one that used Yod Hey Vav Hey. Uh, the the uh, E document was the one who used Elohim and so forth and so on. There were all these documents. Well, it was inevitable that that would come into the area of Gospels studies as well. So the question of uh, the Gospel studies has followed along that same line. In other words, instead of reading Matthew, if some of the scholars that are working today were to give a Bible study on Matthew, if they were to be doing what they normally do, they wouldn't be telling you we should study this book called Matthew. They would say we need to tear this all apart and figure out you know, each little part where it came from and try to paste it all back together. And how many of you are familiar with the Jesus Seminar, or at least the phrase? Okay. The Jesus Seminar, seminar has been in the news. It started back in the mid-90s, and, um, or early 90s actually. The Jesus Seminar was a so-called third attempt or the third wave to try to figure out who this historical Jesus was or is. And uh, they did it along the lines of a number of criteria, which I talk about here. Anyway, I'm going to just briefly uh, suggest what that is, but then I'm just going to discard it because I don't think it it has value for us. But if you read other commentaries, you will inevitably come up against this. I mean, this is this is the new newest wave in the so-called new quest for the historical Jesus. So, rather than receiving them as historical documents written by specific authors to specific communities for a specific purpose, the Gospels, along with most other literary remains of ancient communities, have been subjected to various forms of criticism in order to determine source materials, literary motives, and the history of their compilation. Thus, rather than reading the Gospels for the story they tell, they have become museum pieces presenting a kind of challenging puzzle to be unraveled by modern experts. The primary problems inherent in the current critical approach to the Gospels are several. First, much of what the modern critics purport to be the original story of the Gospels is based upon calculated speculations. One can only speculate what might have been the motivation in an author's mind for writing a particular text, unless, of course, the author explicitly reveals his or her motivation. I mean, I started out by telling you why I wrote this. I wrote this because I want us to be able to study the book of Matthew so we get to know Yeshua better. So, but you might, you might be suspect of that motive. I mean, you could still say, well, I don't know, Tim. I think, uh, I think you're writing this so that eventually you can publish it and make money. Well, 
I mean, you know, I mean, none of our motives are 100 percent, right? Pure. I mean, we, we have mixed motives. So, but when we ask the question, why did Matthew write this gospel? Well, we don't know exactly 100 percent. We know why John wrote his. He says in John 20, verse 30 and 31, Many other signs Yeshua did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you will know that Yeshua is the Messiah, and that believing in him you might have life through his name. So John tells us explicitly his purpose in writing. Matthew doesn't. But the same may be said for compilers or redactors of a text. Their motives or are something modern critics may claim to know, but they do so only on the basis of presumption. When I say a, a, a compiler or a redactor, those are just uh, words meaning people who put together the, the writings of other people into a given document. You know, uh, so, so for, for instance, when my father of blessed memory passed away, and afterwards I was given the challenge of you know, going through all of his stuff and finding out what to keep and what not to keep, I found boxes and boxes of his sermons. Well, his sermons, unfortunately, were not written out. They were just outlines that he took to the pulpit with him. But if they had been written out, it might have been interesting. I had th- thought to myself, maybe I should compile from all of his writings, like everything he wrote on Luke, and then say, you know, here's Dr. Haig's comments on the book of Luke. Well, he never wrote a book on Luke, but he preached enough messages on Luke that one could have made a book with his name on it, saying these are the studies in Luke. That would be a compilation. Now, if somebody later on said, you know, it's obvious that these these various sermons were not preached in a series. And so we hear him saying something here that doesn't seem to match what he said over here, because he said this when he was two years in the ministry, and he said this when he was 53 years in the ministry, and, and so he has a slightly different take on it. So a redactor goes through and says, let's see if we can kind of make things work here, kind of make it a, a, a unity. Did that happen in the biblical text? Yeah, it probably did, to some extent. Not in every, not in, in on everything, but it, it probably did. I mean, I would suggest that, that the disciples of Isaiah or the prophets, that the, 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 the sons of the prophets or whomever they were, would take the writings of their teachers and put them together, preserve them. Do you think it happened with Yeshua? I think it did. How could Yeshua have walked for three years with 12 men? And afterwards, they realized in, in more specific ways who he was. And then after they saw him ascend, right, in, into heaven and, and received the Spirit of God in a special anointing way to go out and make disciples of the nations, how could they have not thought, wow, we need to really, re- let's get together and talk. I, we want to talk about everything that he told us, everything that he taught. Do you remember the time we were down by the lake? And yeah, you know, and somebody's, yeah, what did he say there? Remember that time he was by the road and, and he looked and he saw things growing and he, he said this is a parable and all those seeds and the... Remember that? Yeah? Okay, let's, let's, let's get that down. In fact, Yeshua told the disciples, when I go, I will not leave you without comfort. I will send the Ruach and he will remind you of everything that I taught you. Now that oftentimes is used very broadly of this is what the Spirit does for all of us. I don't think so. I think this in John is a specific promise to the disciples that they would be aided by the Spirit of God to remember what Yeshua had taught them, and they would compile that. That's what I think became the Gospels. By the direct work of the Spirit of God, they remembered what Yeshua had done and what he had said. Now you say, but wait a minute, Tim. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called what? The synoptics, right? Which means they look at it. Optic, right? They look at it in a, in, a, in, a, in a given way, in a same way. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you basically have the same story, but not quite. 
I mean, Mark doesn't even care about the birth of Yeshua, it appears. It's not even there. He starts out with Yeshua as a man, as a grown man. But Matthew and Luke have a very important message about his birth and his genealogy and what that means for us about who he is. Say, well, if the Spirit reminded them of everything, why did they write it differently? Well, that's one of the questions, and that's what has caused so much uh, discussion with regard to the synoptic Gospels, particularly as to how were they compiled? How did they come together? So that's what I mean when I say compilers and redactors. Question. So did Matthew sit down and write this in one sitting? Uh, I don't know. I wish I did. Um, is it, you know, it, have you ever thought that maybe in the world to come we'll be able to rewind the tape and watch and see what happens? May, no, maybe we don't want to do that. I take it all back. Uh, um, but, 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 may, but maybe God can edit it so that we can see exactly what, what Matthew did. Um, as we get along here, I'll give you at least some possible suggestions and what I think might be more probable. But th- that's the kind of questions we're asking tonight. All right, let's go on. Um, so the same may be said of compilers and redactors of a text. Their motivations are something modern critics may claim to know, but they do so only on the basis of presumption. The same may be said of source criticism in the Gospels. When we say source criticism, we're saying, where did the author learn this story? How did he know this? How did he know this? The criteria of suspicion, for instance, is hardly verifiable. This is one of the criteria of the Jesus Seminar. By the way, if you, only a few of you raised your hands. Very briefly, the Jesus Seminar was a group of invited scholars who met together every year at the Society of Biblical Literature, and they discussed what they felt were the authentic sayings and actions of Yeshua. When they finished with that, they, for, they, they put this all together in a document which became kind of known as Q, but that's not really what Q is. Um, but it became what they felt was the base story of the gospel, and everything else was added. How did they decide? I sat in the Jesus Seminar one year just because I wanted to see it. They had little, uh, they had three little bowls. Each one had three little bowls. They had a, a, a pink bead, they had a black bead, and they had a gray bead, if I remember correctly, those colors. And when they, were, when they, would, they would discuss a passage... When they were finished discussing that passage, they would send around a basket, and every scholar would put the color of bead. If you put a color of bead of red in, it was, I think, uh, yes, I think this is authentic. If you put a black bead in, it was, no, I don't think it's authentic. And if you put a gray bead in, then it was, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm in the middle of the road here. And then they would determine through the vote of the scholars, and that would either become authentic or inauthentic. Now, what criteria did they use? They used the criteria, what they call the criteria of suspicion. This criteria by which some, I should say criterion, uh, criterium, I'm sorry, it's, it's a plural, it should be a singular. This cri- uh, criterion by which some modern scholars decided what is original and what has been added by later generations of religious communities is surely a matter of circular reasoning. For the criterion of suspicion suggests that when the Gospels contain dogma, which was essential for the doctrine and practice of the later Christian church, it certainly could not have been original, but was added by a theological motivation. You understand what I mean by that? Okay, so let's say, for instance, the virgin birth. The fourth century Christian church said the virgin birth was one of their drop-dead doctrines. If you denied the virgin birth, you got burned at the stake. Okay? And you could deny some other things. You could deny the Pauline uh, authorship of Hebrews and get away with it. But you could not deny the virgin birth. The virgin birth was one of the dogmas of the Christian church which they said we cannot give up on. For many in the Jesus Seminar, they would say that is suspicious. It's suspicious because we have every reason to believe that their motive for emphasizing 
the, the motive would be to write back into the Gospels the story of the virgin birth. Since we have no Gospel manuscripts that are older than the 3rd century, there is the presumption that the manuscripts that we have have been tampered with, that things have been added into them, and they would be motivated to add things into them that supported what they wanted the church to believe. So if they have one of these strong doctrines, it must be that they probably added this to the gospel. So everything related to the virgin birth is stripped out of the gospels by the Jesus Seminar, saying that's not authentic by the criteria of suspicion. It's suspicious that what is in the Gospels would support the later dogma. Yet it is just as probable that later dogma was the result of what the Gospel writers actually said. The same may be true for the criteria of multiple attestation. This criteria presumes that what was originally given by the Gospel writers as historical would be reiterated by more than one Gospel. So if you find something that's only in Matthew, but it's not in Mark or Luke, you say, hmm... That probably shouldn't be there. If you find two of them saying it, oh, that's a little better. If you find all three of them, okay, that's, that's a pretty sure thing. But again, it is just as possible that a true historical fact could have been included in one account but passed by in the others. That's, that, that certainly is logically possible. A second problem inherent in the current discipline of gospel studies is that of, that of failure to abide by the very criteria that has been established. The Jesus Seminar produced a multicolored rendition of the Gospels identifying the seminar's conclusions, what parts of the Gospels were authentic and inauthentic and what lies somewhere in between. So in other words, they actually produced a book that had the various colors. You know, so you could see, you know, read all the red and that's the real stuff. Read all the black that shouldn't be in there. Read all the, the gray and you can take it or leave it. But why five Gospels? Why not four? Because the Jesus Seminar came to the conclusion that the Gospel of Thomas should have been included in the canon. But scholarly assessment of the seminar's conclusions have highlighted the fact that the criteria upon which these decisions were made were hardly historical. Hayes summarizes his critique. This is uh, R.B. Hayes in an article called The Correct Jesus. The depiction of Jesus as a cynic philosopher with no concern about Israel's destiny, no connection with the concerns and hopes that animated his Jewish contemporaries, no interest in the interpretation of Scripture, and no message of God's coming eschatological judgment. Does everybody know what eschatological means? Last days judgment is quite simply an ahistorical fiction achieved by the surgical removal of Jesus from his Jewish context. Thus, while we may benefit from the work of historical or biblical criticism, form criticism, and textual criticism, in the end, the Gospels come to us with a story of which the main character is Yeshua. It does us little good to spend our time speculating about the formation of the text within the so-called New Criticism because we don't have any data. We can only speculate. What good is that? Here we have a story that has, that has essentially uh, lasted for, for thousands of, of years. And who are we at this juncture to begin tearing it apart and deciding what is, what is real and what is not? Even worse is the outcome if, based upon our own speculations, we call into question the tangible text that is before us. Let me just say this, however, about the Jesus Seminar. It did have a benefit. You know what it did? It got evangelicals up off their derriers and, um, and, and had to work hard. Say, well, okay, well, these are questions we had never asked. So the Jesus Seminar did cause questions to be asked. The other thing is, is that scholars, both evangelical and liberal scholars, begin to say, we need to know a lot more about the first century. And so if you've noticed, since the early 90s, there are, I mean, I cannot even begin to keep up with all of the books on the Jewish-Christian relations in the first century. You know, the, the Judaisms of the first century, Jesus and Judaism, the Ju- you know, Paul and Jesus. 
Judaism. I mean, it's it's just it's a huge field that's just burgeoned in the in the last uh, 10, 15 years, and that's essentially the result of the Jesus Seminar. So, uh, Yahoo, that's that's good. Um, keep those books coming. Okay. Uh, since therefore very little verifiable data can be produced to detail the history of the formation of the Gospels, I am following the admonition of Davies and Allison in their commentary and focusing on the text of Matthew as we now have it. If you think, if any of you here think that, well, maybe that shouldn't be in there, okay, we can discuss that. We can debate that. But you know what? I, we're just going to study the, the text as we have it. Now, I will point out sometimes where there are questions in the various manuscripts that may give us a different reading. But we're just going to look at, at Matthew as we find it. Of course, I also have a theological presupposition that furthers my desire to so focus this study. I believe that the Gospel of Matthew contained in our Bibles is the result of the divine activity of revelation through the inspiration of God's Spirit. As I said, we all recognize, of course, that the text of Matthew we now possess has textual variants. You understand what I mean by that? For those of you that, you know, and some may be listening to this tape, you, you, some, and no one should, uh, should mock this at all because I think we all started here. There may be some who think there was, we have this one manuscript called Matthew and that's what's been copied in all of our English Bibles or translated in all of our English Bibles. That's not true. We have, we don't have anything written by Matthew by his very hand. We only have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. <laughs> And we really don't know how many how many generations exist between what we call you know the the uh, autograph and the cop the earliest copies that we have. So we have thousands of copies, some of which are complete and some which are incomplete, some which are just scraps. So how do we get the book of Matthew that we read in our English Bibles? Scholars have gone through the arduous uh, task of trying to decide which of the manuscripts of the readings are the best. For instance, in most of the cases, and I'm being very rough numbers here, in 75 to 80 percent of the cases, all of the manuscripts essentially agree on any given verse that they that they have. But there's 20 percent of the time they don't. Now, that 20 percent of the time includes a lot of things. About 5 percent of the time is a genuine question. Should that sentence be there or not? Should that word be there or not? Should it be this word or that word? Scholars have gone through the arduous task of, of doing their best to decide uh, on the basis of numbers of scientific criteria, and they have come up with the text that we now have. That's why in some of your study Bibles you'll have in the margin it says, some manuscripts read, you know, something different. Well, we're going to have that in Matthew. But... We all recognize, of course, that the text of Matthew we now possess as textual variants, and we do well to engage in the science of textual criticism in order to determine, as best we can, what was the original text of the Gospel writer. And I'll try to help us do that when there's significant variants. But in the broad stroke of things, these textual variants are peripheral to the majority of the Gospel text, which is attested without significant variation in literally thousands of manuscripts. As such, we will give ourselves in this study to understand the story of Matthew as we have it before us, and to ask the all-important question in such a study. What does this story tell us about the historical figure called Yeshua, and how does our understanding of his life, teachings, and actions call us to faith and faithfulness? While we will center our attention primarily upon the Gospel of Matthew, we cannot ignore the other synoptic Gospels if we desire to see the story in its fullest expression. So we will note the synoptic parallels and strive to understand how the viewpoint of two other authors who are telling the same story help us complete or sharpen the words of Matthew's Gospel. Yet it is not my purpose to write a commentary on the synoptic gospels i doubt seriously i can write a commentary on matthew so you know two more doesn't work 
So our primary concern will be to understand Matthew's viewpoint and his message about Yeshua and his work. Now, yes, question, Rebecca. How long have we had this current book of Matthew then? How long has this particular version that we have, most of us have now in our Bibles, how long has that version been around? Um, at least since the 4th century and probably earlier. We'll talk about that in just a minute about when we talk about the date of Matthew. All right. Question. Which Matthew? You're saying, wait, there's more than one Matthew? Well, that's what we're being told in our day. There's a seminar that's been going around the country telling you that you've been reading the wrong Matthew. This happens to be one of my hobbies, so I promise not to take too long on it. Having determined to focus on the extant text of Matthew and not be overly concerned with the new criticism that characterizes current gospel study. By the way, if you want to do study on the current gospel study, I would recommend it highly. But let me tell you, it is a huge, huge area you're going into. Um, I, I, I waded through probably 50 pages uh, just on one item relating to the source materials for Matthew. I mean, it's just these scholars have way too much time. They need to teach more classes. So it is appropriate at this juncture to ask the question, the obvious question, which Matthew? This question is a contemporary one, however, and particularly one that has arisen among the emerging Messianic or Torah communities based upon historical data that suggests Matthew may have originally existed in an Aramaic or Hebrew form and only later translated into Greek. Some have suggested that the extant Greek manuscripts of Matthew, when compared with Hebrew manuscripts, show a wide divergence and point to two or more distinct manuscript traditions. So here's generally what is being said. Matthew originally wrote his gospel in Hebrew or Aramaic. Somewhere along the line, the church decided that wasn't cool and rewrote it in Greek. But when they rewrote it, they messed it up. They way messed it up. So you shouldn't. And all of your English Bibles are a translation of the Greek Matthew versus the Hebrew Matthew, which you should be reading. In recent days, much has been made of the various copies of Matthew in Hebrew, and it has even been suggested that one of these copies, the so-called Shem Tov, offers the best exemplar of Matthew's original gospel. Let me first give a brief description and then tell you what I think about that. The oldest extant Hebrew Matthew is that of the Evan Bohan, which means touchstone. It's a, ta- it's a, it's a takeoff on Isaiah, where he talks about the, uh, there is in Zion laid a stone, a precious cornerstone. This was a multi-volume work produced as a polemic against Christian missionaries who were doing the work among Jewish people. The Evan Bohan was uh, authored by Shem Tov ben Itzach ben Shaprut, sometimes called Ibn Shaprut. It is a polemical work comprising 12 sections or books, though an additional five sections were added later. It was originally written by Shaprut in 1380. So, folks, that is very late. And revised several times through subsequent years. Here's a quote from, uh, uh, from who? From George Howard. Of the original books, the first deals with the principles of the Jewish faith. The next nine deal with various passages in the Bible that were disputed by Jews and Christians. The eleventh discusses certain Haggadic sections in the Talmud. That means the stories that the rabbis uh, used. Uh, by Christ- used by Christians or proselytes to Christianity. And the twelfth contains the entire Gospel of Matthew in Hebrew, along with polemical comments by Hashem Tov interspersed throughout the text. So... What is this work anyway? It was a work that was put together for Jewish people so that they could study and be ready to answer the Christian missionaries when they came and said, you ought to become a Christian. That's what this whole work was. He decided to take the book of Matthew in Hebrew and show from the book of Matthew how Jesus could never have been the Messiah. From the Christian's own book. 
What better way to defeat them? So along the way, he would, you know, uh, for instance, one, one of the, the comments, just to give you a, a bit of a flavor, uh, does not the Tanakh say God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind? And yet doesn't Yeshua right here in Matthew say, doesn't Matthew say he's the son of man? Well, if he's the son of man, he certainly cannot be God. God says he's not the son of man. So those are the kind of comments that are interspersed throughout Matthew. George Howard has collated an eclectic text comparing a number of extant manuscripts and offered the Hebrew text of Matthew first in 1987 with a revised edition in 1995. The title of Howard's 87 edition suggested that the Shem Tov was in fact a, quote, primitive Hebrew text of Matthew. But scholarly critiques of his work made it clear that such an assertion was not well founded. Thus, and let me hasten through this because I'll bore you to death. Um, Basically, when he first, what Howard did was he went through, and Howard is a contemporary scholar, he went through and he took out all of the polemical remarks of Ibn Shaprut and put everything together so it made a contiguous book of Matthew. Understand what I'm saying? Okay. And then he compared it to nine other copies of the same work and used that to try to find what he felt was the best example of Ibn Shaprut's or Shem Tov's text. Okay? Then he said, he thought this was the primitive text of Matthew. Meaning what? That, that the original Hebrew that Matthew had written had been preserved through all those years by the Jews in this book. And now it had come to light. However, um, as scholars began to look through the text, they, they re- he took a, a real beating for things that he had overlooked. And so in the next printing, he simply called it not the Gospel of Matthew according to a primitive Hebrew text, but simply Hebrew Gospel of Matthew. Indeed, the reaction of the scholars to Howard's work and thus to the value of Shem Tov Matthew have been predictably varied. Numbers of scholars gave strong negative reviews, but a minority were more cautious. Some have even suggested that the Shem Tov Matthew should be given greater significance in the matter of textual criticism of Matthew's Gospel. Let's go on. This is not the place to belabor this, but go down to the the, uh, number one. Um, What do we say about uh, uh, this Shem Tov? Shem Tov's Matthew was originally interspersed with polemical comments by Ibn Shaprut. As such, it has clear tendencies toward textual corruption. Now, let me explain that. We'll go to number two. When When you write a text and you insert all kinds of comments in the text, okay, that, that gives rise to all kinds of other possible mistakes. What a copyist does when he's copying something, if he sees a word that's the same here and the word the same here, he skips, right? His eye skips. Well, if you're writing your own stuff in here, and then you go back to copy Matthew, you might have forgotten where you were. And so you might leave out sections, and that, that is exactly what happens. On the other hand, you might say, you know, the point that I want to make for my Jewish brothers to really put down this Jesus isn't found in Matthew, it's found in Mark. So I'm going to take part of Mark and put it in here, because that would help make my case a lot better, which he did. So you can't really take this Matthew and say, here's a copy that goes all the way back to the you know, second century or first century. Um, it's, it's been manipulated. That's my point. Okay, number two at the bottom of the page. In spite of the obvious textual problems in the Shem Tov Matthew, it still presents some unique and mostly unique readings. Uh, Scheninger finds 44, and these should be fully considered when engaging in matters of textual criticism. What do I mean by unique readings? Well, when we're trying to decide... Is this really what Matthew said? We look at all the manuscripts. You know, scribes have a tendency to want to harmonize things. 
if Mark said it this way, and some scribe knows that Mark said it this way, then he might say, well, I think Matthew probably wants to say it the same way. Why? Because Mark said Yeshua said this, and Matthew says he says something else. Well, he couldn't have said something different, so let's harmonize them. What's very interesting is when you find a reading in a manuscript which is unique to all three synoptics in all other manuscripts. Now you say, where did that come from? And in the Shem Tov, there are 44 such readings, according to one scholar. That's worth studying, if we want every word. Now, quickly, two other manuscripts, the Munster and the Dutile. Uh, I'm just going to summarize this because we want to get on to other things. Um, a very fascinating thing, which I think most of us, myself included, I didn't realize this until, actually, till the last few years, and that is that, at the, at, at the beginning of the Reformation, okay, the 1500s was a huge time of Reformation coming, the Protestant Reformation, right? There was also a huge rise in the study of Hebrew amongst Christians. Now, I knew that, but I didn't realize to what extent. And during this period of time, there were other copies of Matthew in Hebrew that were found and were published. One in 1550, uh, 1537, another in 1555. Right at the time of the Reformation, right when the Reformation was in full steam. And these people were studying Hebrew. It's amazing when you begin to, you know, when you begin to listen to early Luther and what he had learned from the Jewish rabbis that he was studying with learning Hebrew. Um, if a few things could have changed, the Reformation would have been a lot different. Really. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you see how close Luther was to espousing a messianic kind of a, a faith. I mean, he was really very keen on Sabbath and was close to declaring the, the, the Seventh-day Sabbath as the day of, of worship. I mean, he was that radical. He had to be to do what he did anyway, right? Um, so the study of Hebrew... Anyway, there are two more Matthews. And these, uh, these manuscripts align far closer to the Greek and Latin than, they do, uh, than does the, uh, the Shem Tov. So we essentially have three Matthews. And uh, Johannes Quincarboros... Uh, in 1551 reprinted uh, Munster's Matthew with notes because he thought there needed to be some changes. Now, I am fortunate to have a copy of that uh, that I scanned into my computer. So it's in, it's in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So if you don't read those, it's no good for you. But if, you, if you're interested in that, um, go to my website and you can see it. All right. Uh, what is the overall assessment? Bottom of page four. It indicates that the Greek text that underlies our English translation is not substantially altered by a comparison with the Hebrew. Or, to put it simply, the Hebrew Matthews do not present a different Matthew at all than what we know from the Greek textual witnesses. The question then of which Matthew is moot, we are fortunate that so many manuscripts are extant to give witness to the ancient gospel of Matthew. So, basically, after going through all of that, I tell you, uh, the Hebrew Matthews don't make a huge difference. They may have a different reading here, a different reading there, but what we have in our, what you have in your English Bible is what the vast majority of manuscripts agree with. So you can be, you can be fairly certain on that. Let's go to the authorship. Say, so, well, why should we have to talk about the authorship of Matthew? Doesn't, isn't it Matthew's Gospel? Doesn't it say that? No, it doesn't. If you begin reading the book of Matthew, you never say, it never has his name as being the author. It's not like at the beginning of the Pauline epistles when he says, Paul, the apostle of Yeshua, the Messiah, to the Philippians, you know, peace and grace or whatever. Um, no, it doesn't. So, it's anonymous, meaning that the author did not begin by identifying himself. Yet, very early in the history of the apostolic canon, our gospel was attributed to Matthew, the tax collector who was selected by Yeshua to be among the twelve. In Mark and Luke, by the way, he's called Levi. 
or Levi. Only in the book of Matthew is he called Matityahu, Matthew. That's interesting, isn't it? What does that mean? I don't know. If any of you have some good ideas, please tell me. Eusebius, who lived 260 to 340 in his ecclesiastical history, makes this comment. Now, Matthew made an ordered arrangement of the oracles in the Hebrew or Aramaic language, and each one translated could mean interpreted it as he was able. Well, did he say Hebrew or Aramaic? The problem is, is that in Greek, the, the word for Hebrew was also used to, de, to, to, to do, uh, describe Aramaic of the first century. Uh, Aramaic is a close relative of Hebrew, or vice versa. The same perspective is reiterated by Irenaeus, who was Bishop of Lyon in 130 to 200. Matthew, also among the Hebrews, published a written gospel in their own dialect when Peter and Paul were preaching in Rome and founded the church there. So as far as Irenaeus was concerned, as quoted by Eusebius, Matthew was writing his gospel during the days of Peter and Paul. Paul was executed by all accounts, before the destruction of the temple. Eusebius also notes that Pontanus, the teacher of Clement of Alexandria, who lived 150 to 215, went to India, quote, went to India, and the tradition is that he there found his own arrival anticipated by some who were acquainted with the gospel according to Matthew. For Bartholomew, one of the apostles, had preached to them and left them the writing of Matthew in Hebrew letters, and this writing was preserved until the time mentioned. Many uh, modern scholars have presumed that the tradition of Matthew's authorship was based entirely upon the words of Papias. So basically, Papias is the first one to tell us Matthew wrote this gospel, and then what the modern scholars are telling us, everybody just quoted Papias. So if he was wrong, everybody was wrong. Um, however, uh, it, this is probably based upon the fact that Eusebius tell, says that Papias was uh, a man of little intelligence. And why did Eusebius say that? Well, because Papias believed in the literal millennium. He was a killiest. He believed that there was a thousand-year reign of the Messiah coming, and everybody thought that was just stupid at that time. So they figured this guy couldn't have any brains. Well, why would anybody even question that Matthew wrote this? By the way, um, I would think that a tax collector might keep pretty good records. I mean, you know, it was his living, right? Basically, the, tax, the Jewish tax collectors were hired by the Roman government, and they had to give a strict accounting of what they gathered. And uh, so maybe his keeping of records was part kind of, who, of his personality and kind of his job. Yeah, so maybe there's some value in that. The, uh, wh why would anybody question it? The extant Greek Matthew does not read as a translation of a Hebrew original, which the traditions ascribe to Matthew. So here's the problem. If Matthew really wrote his gospel first in Hebrew, the Greek manuscripts that we have don't read as a translation. Lingu linguistic scholars can identify something that is a translation. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit torresource.com. Which, which form of Greek? Because as I understand it, in the Ethiopic church, um, with their form of Coptic translations, that the, there is a possibility that it's translated from Aramaic. 
So which which form of Greek yeah. are you referring to? I'm I'm talking about the manuscripts that are extant from the th late third and early fourth century. Codex Sinaiticus, Codex Vaticanus, Codex Alexandrinus, these and, and all later Greek manuscripts read as pure Greek, not as a translation. And the same is, by the way, true of the Greek that we have for, for, Hebrew, for the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm not saying, you know, well, let me get to the conclusion here, and then I think maybe I'll answer your question. If not, raise your hand again and we'll come back to it. So, the Greek manuscripts that we, that we use now to translate the English Bibles you have, linguistic scholars would say, these are not a translation of Hebrew. They're good, solid, native Greek, Koine Greek. Moreover, the extant Hebrew Matthews show clear affinity to an original Greek or Latin text from which they were translated, though in some instances they may uh, contain unique readings that reflect an original Hebrew vorlaga. In other words, a, a Hebrew uh, 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 base text. And I've, I've been working in translating one of these Matthews, Hebrew Matthews, and it's, it's obvious a translation from the Greek. I mean, it's just obvious. He even transliterates some words from the Greek. I mean, he's looking at a Greek manuscript and he's translating it into Hebrew. Um, and sometimes not so well, by the way. So that's one problem. If Matthew originally wrote in Hebrew, the manuscripts we have today don't look like tra uh, uh, translations of Hebrew. So where'd they come from? That's one of the big problems that the scholars ask. Secondly, if Matthew's gospel was originally a Hebrew or a make document, it's difficult to explain why such a Semitic original would have incorporated a Greek document that is Mark almost in its entirety. Of the 661 verses in Mark, 500 of them are essentially found in Matthew. Okay, so here's Matthew, tax collector, Jewish guy, Hebrew speaker, walks with Yeshua, right? He's first-hand witness. He's first eyewitness. He's writing down the story. He's going to go over to this Mark guy who's writing in Greek, who wasn't even with Yeshua, and incorporate all of his stuff into his letter, into his gospel? That makes sense. Along the same line of reasoning, it is difficult to explain why Matthew, an apostle who had accompanied Yeshua, would have allowed a Greek document like Mark to determine the order, ordering of his materials. And yet when we see the order, the chronology in which Matthew gives the life of Yeshua, it's just like Mark. Not like Luke. Not exactly like Luke. Where do we fall down on this? Well, external evidence, that is, these older witnesses from the church fathers, for a Matthean authorship seems overwhelming and very early. Less than 50 years after the writing of Matthew, the tradition is firmly, firmly in place that the author of the gospel was, in fact, Matthew, the tax collector. Moreover, Papias was, according to Eusebius, a hearer of John. In other words, Papias is known as one of John's, the Apostle John's students. And he was a companion of Polycarp. We used to call Polycarp, Polycarp many fish in his uh, Against the Jews. Polycarp spoke of the apostles, quote, who preached to us. So Polycarp, uh, at least in, by his own testimony, said, I, I sat in the hearing of the apostles of Yeshua, of the twelve. They were my teachers. And Irenaeus, as recorded by Eusebius, testifies that Polycarp, quote, had familiar intercourse with John and with others who had seen the Lord. So here you have a, a next generation witness saying, Matthew wrote this. That's pretty early. And I think that's pretty substantial if we're looking for, for a testimony. Their close proximity to the apostles themselves makes their witness to the Mathenian authorship that much stronger. Furthermore, the early tradition of Mathenian, uh, Mathenian authorship went virtually unchallenged in the early centuries of the Christian church. 
Somebody somewhere would have said, no, he didn't do it. You just don't find anybody. How then if, and this goes to your question, how then if Matthean authorship seems most likely, are we to explain the absence of early Hebrew or Aramaic manuscript evidence for the gospel and even more, the mixture of Semitic and Greek conventions in the Matthew text? One explanation is that the Logia, or the book that uh, spoken of by Papias, attributed to Matthew, was actually an early Hebrew or Aramaic document of the sayings of Yeshua. Again, let me summarize. As I said, I think it, I think it seems most likely, it se- to me it does at least, that the, the, the disciples of Yeshua would have taken it upon themselves after his ascension to begin to write down, to record, to somehow remember, to rehearse his teachings, his words, and his actions. After all, now they had come to realize they were to take what he said and pass it on. And, and, and this was something that they recognized was a clear work of God because following the Shavuot in which the Spirit was poured out upon them to do that, they recognized, uh, okay, the harvest is on and we're the harvesters. And so, you know, we, we've got a major task ahead of us here. I can't believe that they didn't get together and start saying, okay, let's record this and record it well and record it fast. Because we don't want anybody to forget this. More than that, we want to pass it on. I think that kind of document, whatever, if you want to call it Q or whatever you want to call it. And by the way, Q stands for uh, Kvela. Is that right? Uh, is that how, do I pronounce it right? Kvela? Which, huh? Kvela. Okay. Which means source, right? So... The source document. So, is it possible that something like that got written by the apostles, and uh, and and then that became a kind of a template for those who would expand the story from their own recognition, uh, own memory, and so forth? So, for instance, if 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 Matthew incorporates 500 of the 661 verses in Mark, and Luke incorporates, I forget how many, a number of them in Mark, but there are verses where Matthew and Mark agree word by word that are not in Mark. Okay, so if, just think about this for a minute. If I'm writing my story over here, and you're writing your story up in Seattle, and we're writing the same story, okay, and when we get our stories finished, we put them together, and we see that some of our sentences are verbatim, word for word the same. What does that mean? We had some document in front of us that was the same, each of us, that we were copying parts out of. That would make sense. Now, is it impossible that the Spirit could give them the same words? No, it's not impossible. The Spirit can do whatever He wants. But it doesn't appear as that's how the Spirit works in writing Scripture. The personalities and tendencies and styles of each writer are are, are in their works. So when we have things that Matthew and Luke say as verbatim, which Mark doesn't say at all, we have to presume that Matthew and, and Luke had some document that they relied upon. And maybe... That is what the document is that the, they're talking about that Matthew wrote in Hebrew. I, I don't have any data to support that. I'm suggesting that. Then what happened? Well, to that document, he added additional things, and his disciples wrote it all out in Greek. Not maybe translating what he did, but taking the story and putting it into native Greek. So now you've got two stories. Original that was written in, in Hebrew or Aramaic, and a immediate telling of that same story in Greek. Now, if that happened, I mean, this is all speculation, okay, but if that happened, I can see how now the next person says, okay, I'm gonna, I, wanna, I don't want to read just the disciples' copy, I want to read Matthew's copy. And maybe I didn't like the way the disciples said it over here because Matthew said it this way, so I changed it a little bit. I can see how, you know, things would get 
it's amazing that we have the consistency that we do, if that theory works. Um, here's what, uh, I think this is a quote from Hegner. Yeah, Donald Hegner. Matthew the Apostle is thus probably the source of an early form of significant portions of the gospel, in particular the sayings of Jesus, but perhaps even some of the narrative material. One or more disciples of the Mathenian circle, Mathenian circle may have been, uh, then put these materials into the form of the gospel we have today. The final editing probably was done by a Hellenistic Jewish Christian. And you have to understand, these scholars use the word Christian to mean a believer in Yeshua. We may think that's anachronistic because you don't really get the Christian church till the second century. But uh, you understand what they mean. Uh, done by a Hellenistic Jewish Christian who was transmitting the tradition addressed who, in transmitting the tradition, addressed Jewish fellow believers who, like himself, had come to accept Jesus as the Messiah and now had to articulate that new faith in such a way as to show its continuity with the past as well as to affirm all the newness of the gospel of the kingdom. Um, I hope Dr. Hagner means the new faith that they personally had because it was not a new faith in terms of uh, faith in general. The, 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 the more, the more uh, normal explanation is that both Matthew and Luke used Mark and then added to Mark what they found in document Q along with some of their own things. That's the two document theory. In the end, all we can say is that the earliest tradition is that the gospel was written by Matthew the tax collector, one of the twelve. It was written within the context of a Jewish community who were followers of Yeshua. Meaning what? Meaning that of the three synoptics, only Matthew is an eyewitness, right? Mark and Luke are telling their story from uh, from a different angle. It's just as it's just as a quality a story, but they're not telling it as someone who walked with Yeshua and saw it all and lived it all. They're telling it from a slightly different perspective. That the author was aware of Mark's gospel and utilized it in his own writing. That the, another source document, also known by Luke, was also used in the compilation of the gospel, which accounts for the verbal agreements between the two. But, lest we forget, perhaps the most important is the fact that emerging from the late first century were three gospels recording and narrating the life and teachings of Yeshua. Matthew was an eyewitness, while Mark and Luke were disciples of those who were eyewitnesses, essentially Peter and Paul. Thus, from a Torah perspective, the multiple gospels stand as the two or three witnesses is necessary to confirm a matter, which is undoubtedly why they were retained in the canon. Taken together, the synoptic gospels offer an ancient record confirmed by multiple witnesses of our master's life, teaching, death, and resurrection. As such, they form an indispensable body of literature for all who believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. Yes, Craig. No, just hold that second. Did I answer your question, or do you have more? Uh, just let me go back and say, okay, the Ethiopic and the, the Coptic that we have is not any earlier than the 3rd century. So when we study the Coptic manuscripts, we see a conflation. We see the Coptic, Coptic manuscripts sometimes being influenced by the Greek manuscripts. So it's difficult for us to, to know at what point we should accept the Coptic manuscripts as a translation. They're clearly translations. He didn't write in Coptic, right? So they are translations, and in some cases, they appear to be translations in some, in some instances of the Greek, not of, not of a Semitic original. Okay, go ahead. But the question also comes down to a historical perspective, because unlike the Greek church, the Ethiopic church, even to this day, some segments of it were what we would consider today messianic. They, right. they did Hebraic practices, right. Shabbat, right. things like that, even the festivals and some right. Hebraic language. And we, we know from tradition that Polycarp, the apostle of John, supposedly went to Ethiopians right. As, right. as an apostle. Right. So it seems to me that if you look at just based on linguistic tradition, that would be natural to a 
messianic synagogue, for lack of a better term, um, that they would they would have something closer to the original. It, okay, I, you know, I, I, I like what you're saying, and I understand it. Uh, but I would also say there were, I, I would venture to say that the, that the second, early 2nd century Christian church was far more messianic than we think. Agreed. Okay, so um, I'm not sure, you know, uh, Chris O'Quinn would say it was probably, you know, in the 130s, where you have that full divergence. So at, when we have a Coptic manuscript that's late 3rd century or early 4th century or later, where are we to place that in this whole evolution of the Christian church. That we can say the same thing with the Syriac. The Syriac church also retained some of its uh, uh, more Semitic flavor of things. So, and the, the last thing I would say is this, that any translator worth his salt will, will keep a flavor of the language from which he's translating. It, it is not native Greek to say, and he lifted up his eyes and... and and looked. That's native Hebrew. So why did the Greeks say it that way? Well, because most of them were Hebrew speakers writing in Greek. Okay, so they were still using their normal Hebrew word patterns sometimes, although they were undoubtedly multilingual. They were using, they were thinking as a Hebrew and writing Greek. So it's not surprising that even in a Greek manuscript written originally in Greek, we would have Semitisms. We would have a feeling of of, of Hebrew. That doesn't mean there was a Hebrew original. It just means, um, you know, and and. Uh, uh, you know, if you're around somebody who has a, uh, who had a mother tongue other than English and had it for a long time and came to, to America, you discover that even though they may speak fluent and good English, the patterns that they use in some of their sentences sound more like their mother tongue than, than like English. That's just the way it works, right? So um, that would be my suggestion: is that we still have this problem of why if if. And, and I, I'm, I'm not opposed to saying that Matthew did write originally in Hebrew. But if that's the case, how come we have all, we have zero, zero nada, Hebrew, Aramaic manuscripts, or even scraps of manuscripts of Matthew before 1380? If it was around all that time, you mean to tell me that nobody would, that you know, we wouldn't have found any, anywhere, you know, in a jar somewhere in the desert or something? You would think that something would have shown up, but there's, there's nothing. So uh, to me, that's still, that's still the strongest evidence to say that the Greek tradition was, an, was a very early tradition, and it was considered to be what Matthew also wrote or did write. Yes, Craig. Irenaeus spoke of a, a gospel that Matthew written for the Hebrews in their own dialect. Right. Which would be Hebrew. Yeah, the question of whether the uh, Jewish community in the first century spoke Hebrew or Aramaic is still a debated question. Um, we know that they spoke both. Mm-hmm. But the closer you get to Jerusalem, the more Hebrew. The further away from Jerusalem, the more Aramaic and or Greek. So we may have some geographical issues going on here, too. Okay, let's go to the date of Matthew. Um, I'm going to summarize because you can read this. Um, here's, the, here's the issue. If Matthew used Mark, if Mark was written first, and most scholars agree that that's the case. There are, there are other theories, but most scholars agree that's the case, and it seems the most probable thing. If Mark was written first, and Mark was written between 60 and 65, then obviously Matthew couldn't be written until after that. So the earliest we could have Matthew written is uh, 65. On the other hand, Matthew seems to at times incorporate some things that sound a lot like what happened after the destruction of the temple in, in the Judaisms, particularly in Yavne, in the reconvened Sanhedrin at Yavne. Also, uh, there are some very close verbal agreements. Well, we don't have to say quotes. In a document called the Didache, 
and Matthew. Now, did the Didache quote Matthew, or did Matthew quote the Didache? Well, very few scholars think the Didache was written that early. Most of them put it between 90 and 120. So if the Didache at the earliest is 90 and the Didache quotes Matthew, that means the latest Matthew could have been written was 90, right? Okay, so at least we've got some framework between 65 and 90. Um, I think it probably was written sometime between 80 and 95, after the destruction of the temple. Some would say, no, it has to be before. You know, let's not forget this thing, too. Many people forget this. By the time Matthew was written, Paul had written all of his epistles and had already died. Just because the Gospels come first in your apostolic scriptures, you have a tendency to think that they were written before Paul. Uh Uh-uh. Paul wrote his stuff first. So the communities who were eager to have this message of Yeshua in their hands had already heard the message from Paul. We shouldn't be surprised then that, 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 you know, and I'm sure some, I don't think any scholar uh, of any import is going to be listening to this tape, but his ears are ringing right now because he was saying, oh, that's impossible. What Paul wrote and what these people wrote were in two different geographical locations. And, you know, I don't think it was. I I think these were circulated very widely. And I think Paul's epistles were circulated quite widely as well. And so I think there had to be some cross pollinization. So between 80 and 95. What does that tell us? When you're reading the book of Matthew, think about it. The temple's been destroyed. The Judaisms of the first century have been decimated, at least in the land. They are under great oppression. They don't know what's going to happen next. And you have this burgeoning messianic group that gets more and more Gentiles every day. And Matthew says, I need to write down what the master said, what he told us to do. I mean, we're in a we're in a, a, a landslide here. But we've got to get some something we can hold on to. A lot of times, when you read Matthew, you think thirty. Well, surely it's telling the story of Yeshua in in thirty one, thirty two, thirty three, thirty four, sometime around that time. Surely he's doing that, but he's writing it at he's writing it fifty years later when a lot of stuff has happened and is happening. And that has to affect the way that he wants to tell his story. Please understand this. The Gospels, like all of the Scriptures, are not telling you pure history. I hope that doesn't defeat your faith. That's not the reason it was written. It was, it's not a court log book that just wants to give you the raw, you know, brute facts without any, without any interpretation. That's not it at all. The Gospels were written at a time when the message of Yeshua for the hearts of the people who were following him desperately needed to be put into place for their time and for their circumstances. So what was happening around the destruction of the temple and years later um, is going to be reflected in some measure in the way Matthew tells his story. That's why it's going to be different than Mark. Because Mark wrote before the destruction. If we can be so bold as to state those 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 dates, you know, um, I got to tell you, this excites me. When I, you know, I got this book, I got this book in the mail uh, that a guy let me let me uh, borrow, in which I scanned in. It was printed in nineteen and fifteen fifty five. Okay, fifteen. And I opened this thing up and I'm thinking, I just sat there and looked at this and I thought, how many hands have handled this? Who held this? Fifteen fifty five. Luther could have held this. Calvin, he could have thumbed through its pages. A guy by the name of Servetus that Calvin put to the stake was a great Hebraist of the time. He could have, I thought, man. And then I looked at my Bible and I said, you know what? This 1555 thing, it's nothing. We've got the evidence of manuscripts that go back to the time of, of Ezra, Isaiah, 
you know, we've got the evidence. We don't have the manuscript and stuff. We have the evidence here. It's a tremendous thing, isn't it? I mean, maybe it doesn't excite you. I, maybe I get excited by strange things. But um, when, when I think about the fact that God in his providence has preserved this book for us so that we could think his thoughts after him, wow. You know? Okay, Buzz. What about the assumption that you just said that Mark written 6570. What about some of those people that say Mark written much earlier than that? Um, I, I, I wouldn't have any problem with early it. Early 60s. Yeah, I wouldn't have any problem with that. Too. I'm saying latest 65. Latest 65. Um, uh, yeah, I, th- I know, I've talked with scholars at the ETS meeting who think John was, uh, was written in 40, the Gospel of John, and only later uh, finished, edited, compiled, and put together later by John. Um, so I'm trying to give the most, shall we say, leeway in terms of these dates. I, you know, if, if I'd have taught this 15 years ago, I would have said that Matthew was written in the early 60s. But that's only because as evangelical scholars, we want to put them as early as possible. Mm. And sometimes we, we push it a little bit. All right, so the date. What's the message of Matthew? All of the Gospels, I'm at the bottom of page 7, and we're going to make it, folks. All of the Gospels have the same basic purpose, to describe the person of Yeshua, his mission, and the manner in which he fulfilled it. Yet in this overarching purpose, each may emphasize a particular aspect of Yeshua's person and work, that which would be most important to the community they each addressed. For the Matthean community, whomever they may have been, and boy, have there been a lot of books written about that, Matthew emphasizes the royal kingship of Yeshua as the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. This, as we shall see, is clearly given in good rabbinic fashion in the opening genealogy of Messiah. Likewise, in the entry, in, in the entry into Jerusalem the synoptic, uh, of the synoptics, Matthew alone includes the quote from Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming to you. Surely the other Gospels also emphasize the kingship of Yeshua, but Matthew's tracing of Yeshua's lineage through the line of Joseph and ending with Abraham, as opposed to Luke's genealogy that goes back to Adam, emphasizes the legal right of Yeshua as the rightful heir and fulfillment of the Davidic promise. In being the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant of 2 Samuel 7, Yeshua is likewise the one through whom the Abrahamic promise is realized. Now, I don't have time to explain that tonight, but if you've taken any of my other courses, you, you know how this is connected. When David, in 2 Samuel 7, went in before the Lord, right, and God told, you know, he said to Nathan the prophet, I want to build God this temple. First, Nathan says, great. Then Nathan comes back and says, no, God told me you're not supposed to do it. You don't, you're not going to build God a house, but he's going to build you a house. And the house he's going to build you means the dynasty. And there will always be one from your family sitting upon the throne of, of Israel. In other words, any king that is not related to David is an illegitimate king. Then it says David went and sat before the Lord. He said, who am I, O Lord? And what is, I'm so small. Why would you choose me? And he says, but now I realize that you're talking about the distant future. So David was given an understanding. To, when he says he's going to seat one upon the throne, he means the Messiah. And this is why Matthew goes to such great lengths to tie Yeshua into David. And anyone that knew the Tanakh would understand that link. 
So Yeshua is likewise the one through whom the Abrahamic promise is realized. He's the seed. Matthew also uses the Messianic title, Son of Man, Ben Adam, more than any of the other gospel writers. He uses it 31 times, as opposed to Luke 26, uh, Mark 14, and John 13 times. Of all the gospels, only Luke mentions Adam, tracing the lineage of Yeshua to him, who also came directly from God, who was of God, is the way the genealogy ends. Is it possible that the repeated use of the Son of Man terminology by Matthew was also a cryptic reference to the Abraham-David-Messiah motif with which he begins his gospel? Why? You take the letters of Adam, right? Aleph, Dalit, Mem. Aleph is Avraham, Dalit is David, and Mem is Mashiach. So, so, you know, I'm not saying that's that's for real. I'm not. I'm not beating. I wouldn't. No, I would not fall on my sword for that. But, but, it, but, but in 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 the in the broad stroke of things, it's interesting that if he's going to emphasize his kingship, which he does throughout, why does he repeatedly, more than any other gospel writer, use Son of Man? He has this desire to show us that he is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. Many attempts have been made to find an overall structure for Matthew's gospel, but none are very successful, at least in my opinion. I mean, I, mean, I boy, if you, if you can figure this out, please do. I tried to find all kinds of chiasms. I tried to find all kinds of structures, parallels, whatever I can find any. Um, Perhaps Davies has given us an insight into at least one aspect of Matthew's structuring principles. He appeals to the famous saying of Shimon Hazarik, the righteous one, a sage of the Maccabean era. Shimon the righteous was one of the last survivors of the great assembly. That is the assembly under Ezra. He would say, on three things does the world stand, on the Torah and on the temple service and on deeds of loving kindness. Now, I think most of you have studied Perkei Avot. This is the compiled sayings of the sages that were the distillation of their teaching. And Shimon HaTzadik was one of the last great sages from the period before uh, the, the Maccabean time. So, I mean, he, he is a biggie. And he says the whole world stands on these three things. Torah, temple service, deeds of kindness. Davies notes that in, in Avot Dirabi Natan, which is a later edition written after the destruction of the temple. The saying of Shimon is commented on from a post-destruction perspective, for though the temple service is that which is most beloved by the Holy One, the final phrase, deeds of loving kindness, is explained as substituting for the temple service. Rabbi Natan does this by telling a story about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the framer or the writer of the Mishnah initially. Once, as Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was coming forth from Jerusalem, Rabbi Yehoshua followed after him and beheld the temple in ruins. Woe unto us, Rabbi Yehoshua cried, that is, the place where the iniquities of Israel were atoned for is laid waste. My son, Rabban Yochanan said to him, be not grieved. We have another atonement as effective as this. And what is it? It is acts of loving kindness, as it is said, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So, you see, I mean, after the temple is destroyed, now the rabbis have to say, what are we going to do? And what did they come up with? They took the earlier sayings of the rabbi, who was of... of, of, of huge stature, and they reinterpret it to fit their post-destruction uh, situation. 
Because you can't do service of the temple anymore. So if the world stands on these three things, Torah, the service of the temple, and deeds of kindness, we're in a heap of trouble, right? Because it's only got two instead of three. We're going to be real wobbly. Rabbi Yochanan goes on to show that Daniel, who also worshipped without the temple, engaged in deeds of loving kindness by which God delivered him. Moreover, Yochanan goes on to explain that while Daniel did not actually offer sacrifices in Babylon, his deeds of kindness and his daily prayers were accepted by God as though he had. Thus, in the post-destruction, the foundational triad given by Simon the Righteous is interpreted to be the study of Torah that leads to doing the commandments, daily prayers, and deeds of kindness. So your prayers substitute for the temple. Davies has shown how these three elements, Torah, prayer, and deeds of kindness, are regularly referenced in Matthew's Gospel, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. We will do well to keep these general themes in mind as we study the words of our Master within the social context of post-destruction Judaism. In other words, Matthew is not going to keep telling us we need to go to the temple. Right? The temple's not there. How is he going to redefine the worship of the temple then? That's very interesting. He's going to redefine it as worship of Yeshua. Now, does that mean that he thinks Yeshua has substituted for the temple and the temple is no longer of any importance? I don't think so. He's doing the same thing that the rabbis did. What is it that God wants us to do now that we can't do the sacrifices at the temple anymore? The sacrifice of Yeshua is therefore going to be that which is the central issue of this service of worship with regard to sacrifice. All right. Now, what I've given you in the final pages um, is basically the outline that uh, I got from uh, Daniel Guthrie's or Donald Guthrie's New Testament introduction, which I think is one of the best. It's one of the oldest, you know, it's an old book, but it's fine. And here's what happens. Look in the middle of page 9. You have these opening narratives. You have the infancy narratives, the birth of Yeshua. Then number two, the preparation for the ministry, which is his mikvah and the temptation. And then the beginning of the Galilean ministry. And then you have five discourses. Each discourse is followed by a narrative passage. You know, you know what I mean by narrative, right? Storytelling. All right. So... After he gets through the introduction, here's what Matthew does. He, gives a, he, he, he tells us about one of Yeshua's teaching times, discourse. He's talking and, and teaching. Then he follows that by a story of other things. Then he gives us a second one, followed by a story. Third one, followed by a story. Fourth one, followed by a story. Fifth one. Five discourses of Yeshua in Matthew. Interesting, huh? Five. Five books of the Torah. Five books of Psalms. He's following a very normal Hebrew Semitic pattern for writing a book. And this gives you on pages 9 and 10 and the top of 11 the whole book of Matthew in a kind of a flowing outline. If you want hooks to put it on, just remember that once you get, you know, you can memorize it more or less by the first discourse, what's it about, then comes a story. Second discourse, what's it about, then comes a story. You can kind of learn to work your way through the book of Matthew uh, just by looking at that kind of outline. Um, Okay, let's finish up on page 11. From this brief outline of Matthew's gospel, we may note a number of important things. First, it seems clear that Yeshua is addressing his remarks primarily to the Jewish community of which he was a part, albeit not without the future inclusion of the Gentiles in mind. 
and we'll note this all the way along. He is directing, he's directing his comments in a Jewish way to Jewish people, but he constantly puts this, he slips these little things in, you know, about the Gentiles. In so doing, he set the paradigm of to the Jew first and also to the Greek in the matter of making disciples. His regular rebuffs of the Pharisaic leaders read as an intramural struggle, not as an outsider condemning a group of which he is not a part. This is the way, not so much anymore, but it, in, in, in historical Christianity, Jesus was viewed as a Christian who came to tell all of the Jews why they were wrong. No, I'm serious. I mean, this is, this, when you read these older works, it is, it, it's almost knee-slapping. Uh, but that's not the way it was. The reason that Yeshua can do, I mean, you know, anybody knows, especially in a Semitic culture, if you're a visitor in a group, you don't stand up and call them all, you know, snakes. You just don't do that. You, haven't, you don't have any right to do that. Unless you're a lunatic. <laughs> However, if you've been part of a group for a long time and you're recognized as on the inside, you can speak turkey to those guys. Right? And, and so that's when we hear the harsh words of Yeshua, and sometimes they are harsh, um, towards the, the, the Pharisees. They're, he's talking to his own brothers. He knows the inside scoop, and they know that he knows it. Rather, he is part of the community which he calls to a renewed awareness of what true faith in God actually entails. He is not against the Pharisees per se, because he considers their teaching on the Torah to be an essential high watermark of righteousness, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So he's not, he doesn't have a low view of the Pharisees. He thinks they're very righteous. But it is the hypocrisy of teaching one thing and living something else that draws the rebuke of our master. And, you know, we, we also have the indication, you know, the Pharisees say to him, why do you spend so much time with sinners? With these, you know, these people that don't know the Torah and they're not living the way they should. What does Yeshua say to that? A physician doesn't come to people who are well. He comes to people who are sick. So wait a minute. Who are the sick people in that? It's not the Pharisees. It's the other people. The Pharisees are the ones that are, that are attempting in, to, to do the Torah. And he says, fine, you're doing, you know, go for it. I'm going over here for these people who don't know how. You know how. So he doesn't, he doesn't have this entire negative view of the Pharisees. Although, as we study, we will, we will understand why the Christian church read this say, and, and gained their anti-Semitism. Not quite as much as John, but almost. All right. Secondly, we are struck with the manner in which Matthew relates the many miraculous healings performed by our teacher. After the first discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, the narrative that follows begins and ends with a series of miraculous healings. Likewise, the narrative that follows the second discourse contains the healing in the synagogue as well as the healing of the multitudes. The same pattern follows the third discourse, where the subsequent narrative relates the healing of the Syrophoenician demoniac and the healing of the multitudes and the epileptic boy. As we would expect, the narrative that follows the fourth discourse also contains the story of the healing of two blind men. Up until the time Yeshua enters Jerusalem for his final days before his crucifixion, his teaching ministry is always followed by his healing of those who were sick. It would seem very probable that Matthew's purpose in structuring his gospel in this way was to indicate that Yeshua's performance of healing miracles was done in order to substantiate that he was the promised Messiah and that therefore his teaching ought to be received with full acceptance. In other words, he teaches, he heals. He teaches, he heals. He teaches, he heals. Why does he heal? 
and say, look, what I'm telling you is the truth, because like the prophet said, when the Messiah comes, he will heal those who are sick. I'm the Messiah. Listen to what I'm saying. Or to say it another way, his healing miracles were done in order to verify the authenticity of his message. If John was familiar with Matthew's gospel, and some think that he was, it may be that this very structural element, teaching followed by healing miracles, is what prompted him to include the words of Yeshua, which are not found in the synoptics. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Thirdly, the fact that Matthew includes the three predictions of Yeshua about his impending death, as do the other synoptics, also informs the reader that Yeshua's message is given with his redemptive mission always in view. He did not come as simply a wise counselor or sage to help people reform themselves. He came to accomplish a work that only he could do, the work for which the Father had sent him. That is, to pay the penalty for sin in order that sinners might be eternally redeemed and brought into the family of God, where, by the dwelling presence of the Almighty, Shalom is experienced. The whole scope of Scripture can be summed up in this. God desires to dwell amongst His people. And that's the story of Matthew. Even if the disciples were too close to see this overarching reality, after the fact, Matthew, along with the other Gospel writers, saw it plainly and map it out for us in their inspired words. Fourthly, as we seek the whole picture of Matthew's Gospel before we embark on our journey to study it in detail, we cannot help but be greatly encouraged by the victorious Savior we serve. As I went through, as I went through Matthew again today, just I said, okay, I just want to see the whole thing. I don't want to get bogged down by this verse. That I just want to see the whole thing. By the time I got done, I was thinking... Yeah! It's like, yeah, we win! You know, it's kind of like, how can you get discouraged after you read this? I mean, all that he endured and all that he went through. You know? And he's victorious. He, he, he went through death for us. He conquered death for us. He is real. He is there. He is doing what he's supposed to do. And the story retains its vitality after 2,000 years. If our times appear to be overwhelmingly against the message of the gospel, all the more was it so in the days of Yeshua. Even his own Jewish community was in large measure deafened to the message he brought. Yet this did not dissuade him. He maintained his fervent pursuit of Torah, service to God, and the doing of kind deeds to others. This mysterious one, the very creator become flesh, has demonstrated for us the path we too must walk. And he did so not as the omnipotent divine one, but as having voluntarily given up the exercise of his divine attributes and living as a man clothed in human flesh, experiencing all of the struggles and woes we likewise experience. You know what? You can say it this way. If Yeshua can do it, so can we. Because he said we're to walk in his footsteps. He wouldn't have told us to walk in his footsteps if we were not able. So we're able. And when we start telling ourselves, no, it's impossible, I can't do this, we're getting lied to. Okay? We need to refocus our attention upon the victorious one. And he's the one we're following. In doing so, his victory is our victory because he proved that we too, even in the face of much opposition, can live out the life of faith by the power of the Spirit. 
Moreover, his victory over death and his payment for our sins assured that we too would be victorious. As we set ourselves to study the magnificent story of our master, we will engage in historical, social, grammatical, and theological studies in an attempt to understand the ancient text. But we cannot stop our our efforts at simply understanding the meaning of Matthew's words. We must strive to apply its eternal truths and concepts to our own lives, and by doing so, to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew.